Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, I think we have an awesome show lined up for today. Um, we have very interesting information and pertinent information. We're going to talk about the six steps to preserve your wealth for future generations. You know, I mean, studies have shown that 90% of wealth doesn't make it to the third generation. Interesting. That's a big number. It's a big number. And so, you know, there are ways, though, to, to increase your odds of that not happening to your wealth and for you to be to pass it on and make a difference to future generations. So we're going to talk about how to do that. Yeah, that's good. And we're going to follow that up with a, um, a, a topic of uh, traveling abroad. You know, 72 million Americans, Steve, traveled outside uh, the country in 2016, and um, there, you know, there's a lot of cost when you do that. Obviously, some some obvious ones about uh, you know traveling and so forth, but also there's transaction cost and some um, some safety things that you want to think about. So we're going to look at five ways to save money uh, when traveling abroad. So stick around for that. Yeah, that's a great topic. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey's uh, SmartVestor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Um, our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon right off our website. Yeah, website is moneymd.net. You can go to that, uh, that link. And um, we have the podcast out there. The historical podcasts are categorized by different topics. You can also go to our Facebook page. We always put a weekly video up. And we try to make them kind of comical. You know, we're funny people, right? We do, exactly. Yeah, real comedians. <laughs> try to here. make it interesting anyway. So check out <laughs> Facebook as well. Yeah, that's right. You can also pick up our shows off iTunes as well. And do check us out on our website, moneymd.net, where you can link to us there and ask us your questions, or you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. We'd love to have your questions and comments about the show. Um, well, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, Steve, there's some estimates coming out. This is not final, but um, 2018, the Social Security inflation adjustment looks to be a little bit more um, uh, generous than the last couple of years. The projection is about 2.2%. Now, that's not a lot, but let's put it's that not. in perspective. It was zero in 2015, and it was only 0.3% in 2016. So. Wow. You know, 2.2, man, just like hitting the lottery, right? There you go. Huge <laughs> raise coming your way. Of course, Medicare Part B will probably eat that up. Yeah. As most of you retirees know, that comes out of your Social Security premium. Absolutely. There was another uh, statistic which was interesting. Since 2000, Social Security is up 43%, right? It's a big number, 17 years, 43%, but the inflation for seniors is double that at 86%. So, Social Security is not keeping up with particularly inflation for seniors. Because they base it on the CPI, and mm -hmm. the CPI is not heavily weighted toward medical expenses right. and some of the things that seniors really incur in retirement. So that's a shame. Yeah, in fact, I pulled the numbers on the CPI here uh, before the show, and over the last three years, the, the uh, inflation has gone up 1% <clears throat> per year on average. Last five years, 1.2% per year. Um, the last 10 years, 1.7% per year. So we're under 2% now for 10 years. Mm, that's, that's a long time. On the uh, Consumer Price Index. 
inflation. But if you go back 50 years, it's 4% mm-hmm. still. So um, we've had an incredibly low inflationary period, but that certainly could change and, you know, certainly will change at some point. So uh, you got to be prepared, no doubt. But the interesting fact of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our first topic, and that is the six steps to preserve your wealth for future generations. You know, John, I mean, this is one of these subjects that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. And we we see this uh, time and again with our clients where, you know, somebody passes away and leaves it to their children and gets split up three or four ways. And, you know, half the money usually just gets spent almost immediately paying down debt um, or paying bills or whatever the case may be. And occasionally, there usually there's usually one, maybe one out of three that'll really preserve the wealth, and you know we'll we'll save it and continue to invest it. Um, so we need to change that statistic for for our families. And one of the broadest ways, uh, broadest, broad, one of the most broadcast realities that we see that plague the average. Uh, investor is the fact that 90% of your wealth doesn't make it to the third generation. Um, many studies have confirmed that over the years. And even worse than the loss of the wealth, though, is that sometimes it the, the family itself has infighting and, you know, implodes over inherited assets and over money. Um, so regardless of the amount, we all usually want the same outcome with our leftover money and assets that we've spent a lifetime to create and pass on to our children. You know, aside from what we leave to charity, we usually want to create opportunities for our children that will make a difference for them and for future generations. But of course, that takes on a different shape when you get into the details of our values and our principles. But at its core, it still involves preserving your wealth and creating opportunities for your heirs. Yeah, uh, there's a, an author called Courtney uh, Pullen, um, and uh, they offer, authored The Intentional Wealth, How Families Build Legacies of Stewardship and Financial Health, and she discovered that the 10% of families who made it past the third generation did so by deliberately investing time and energy into this um, in, into the family plan. When you start looking at you know multiple uh, generations and uh, how do you preserve that, and there's a lot of stories out there about ruinous financial behaviors of the rich and famous like uh, Weona Judd. And um, there's, you know, quite a few of them that we hear about, you know, people winning lotteries and things like that. And the old adage of shirt sleeves to shirtless in three generations is a proven um, culturally wide phenomenon whose concept is really referenced in a lot of different places, including um, the Bible as well. And it occurs because the older generation is so busy accumulating money that it overlooks the steps for encouraging successive generations to buy into the vision for maintaining that long maintaining that long-term wealth and um, you know it's also caused by lack of financial acumen um, sometimes work ethic and and uh, the values not being passed down from the parents to the children and um, just spending time is really what they're saying there and educating the next generation and the future generations exactly yeah they point out you know wealth can be like an emotional tsunami you know running through the family especially when there is a big change in that. I mean, money, you know, exasperates the pre-existing family fault lines and to dis- disrupts family's equilibrium. And this occurs both in large and small estates and with new and old money. Um, it doesn't really make a difference, you know. It, it's all the same. With new money, I mean, people may go through an extraordinarily large amount of it in just a few years, 
as we we've all heard you know with lottery winners how fast that money tends to disappear um and if there's a lot of money that that's been in the family for two or more generations the difficulty can be uh that they deal with a lot of isolation you know they have their own little tribe they tend to be non-trusting outsiders and for good reason I mean, people are always trying to exploit them if you if you have a lot of money um like bringing you know them new investments to to invest in that sort of thing or they live in fear that the only reason someone likes them is because they're wealthy regardless of whether you're dealing with a few hundred thousand dollars in your 401k or millions of dollars in a family business the same problems and principles apply to preserving it beyond the next generation so here are six steps to help you preserve your lifelong wealth beyond you and your children's lifetimes. Yeah, so the first step, Steve, is you got to develop a multi-generational plan um, with the involvement of your adult children. I mean, this plan really means setting up your assets with a structure to be used and maintained by your children as well as your grandchildren. And, you know, this plan takes on different meaning, really depending on how many assets that you have. For instance, if you have like a half a million dollars in a 401k, then it could be simply listing your spouse as a primary beneficiary and your children as contingents um, through a, a, a pass-through trust that, so that your children can only withdraw up to a certain amount per year or maybe just, just the uh, RMD associated with it. So you put a trust uh, involved in that. Yeah, that's right. And if you have millions, I mean, that you're trying to protect, then the plan gets more complicated. You know, it may involve a family limited partnership or an LOC with shares being owned in a trust. You know, for that type of structure, you're certainly going to need to involve an estate attorney. You know, the point here is that you need to have a plan where your children understand the goal of avoiding excess taxes, creating longevity with your assets. Um, get your children to buy into the plan of preserving your assets for multiple generations. That's really the 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 crutch of the plan here um <clears throat> the next one here though is to train your children and their children on the five percent rule you know the five percent rule is simple john i mean if you only spend five percent per year of anything that's invested well then it will likely last beyond your lifetime and even multiple <laughs> lifetimes if you're in your 60s and you're retired with significant assets then you obviously live by this rule otherwise you probably wouldn't still have significant assets, <laughs> yep. you know, but yeah, but if you need to make, you need to make sure your children buy into this rule and your grandchildren learn it at an early age. It's the old saying, don't kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. You know, if you pass on a million dollars, for instance, to your children, then they can take maybe $50,000 per year, 5% without encroaching on the principal over time. In fact, if it's invested in the stock market or a similar returning investment that's making maybe 7 or 8% per year over, over time, over long periods of time, then it would continue to grow and likely keep up with inflation. So if your children buy into the 5% rule and agree to live by it, then they will have assets to pass on after you're gone and so on you know, down to multiple yeah. generations. I like that. It's, it's simple, 5%. Very right? simple, right. Yeah, so another one here, Steve, is is to structure your estate with multi-generational components, which really means that your assets need to have a structure um, that survives you. Otherwise, it'll get broken up and divided, commingled with your heirs' own assets and likely get spent after you're gone. For instance, an IRA with contingent beneficiaries will likely stay as an inherited IRA 
long after you're gone. So that's one step that you can, you know, do a, a stretch IRA like we've talked about. Likewise, an irrevocable trust can survive 21 years after the death of the last living beneficiary. And, you know, if you want to go to the ultimate extreme, you know, the family limited partnership or an LLC, it's a completely separate entity and it can survive forever. I mean, it's a, it's an ongoing entity. And of course, some of these entities are, are really complicated. Um, they can also be very expensive. So it's certainly not for the average estate, but the point is that you need to have a plan and structure your assets that fit kind of your situation so that they, you know, stay intact beyond your death. Um, and your children, you know, buy in on that process are actually involved in that plan as well. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good one. The next one here is to encourage the financial acumen and values that you have in your children. You know, no one can control what values and decisions your children will make after they're grown up and you're gone. But you can certainly improve the odds of them demonstrating some financial savvy with training and teaching. You might start by just encouraging them to go through a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University course um, where they'll develop an appreciation for staying out of debt, maintaining a budget, having an emergency fund. Uh, You can also encourage them in discussions about finances at an early age and throughout their adult years. You know, too many families keep finances as this taboo subject where children are left in the dark about the family situation and how to manage money or avoid debt. Um, since there are very few estate structures that will survive multiple generations, the best tool you have to make sure that your wealth lasts beyond your children is to teach them to be financially savvy and encourage the same values you practice to create the wealth in the first place. Yeah, I like that. That's good. So a little, little bit of education exactly. goes a long way. So that's good. Another one here on the list, Steve, is avoid taxes and the fracturing after your death. So when you start looking at, at taxes and <clears throat> there are income and estate taxes that can take a huge bite out of any, you know, very large estate and end up spelling death to any longevity. And, you know, so right now the um, estate tax exemption is pretty high, but back when it was, um, you know, a million dollars back in the uh, early 2000s, it wasn't uncommon for an estate with a $2 million IRA to get hit with a million dollars of taxes when you combine the income as well as the estate taxes. And, of course, this was unavoidable. I mean, it was simply due to poor planning and not maintaining that detac- uh, that tax deferral. So whenever there's a large tax bill in an estate, uh, then the assets have to get liquidated and any structure is often lost. So um, this annihilates really any chance of preserving assets for future generations. And this point goes along with structuring your estate with um, this multi-generational components that we, we're talking about. But the emphasis here really is on avoiding taxes because that can completely, you know, devastate it. Exactly. Yeah, that means very large estates. They're going to need some type of marital trust, perhaps with Q-tip provisions to take advantage of more than one tax exemption. In the case, in the case, the law does go back to the pre-2010 <clears throat> rules that we have today, and where it could. it's. Yeah, it's a very large exemption right now, up to $10 million, $10.5, almost $11 million for a married couple. But, um, you know, it could go back to a lot smaller numbers at some point here in the future. But it also means the structure needs to avoid encroachment by future spouses or children as much as possible. You know, again, it comes down to planning, and you certainly want to get the help for this for, for large estates, um, but the point is to get started, you know, so you need to avoid taxes and 
and fracturing after your death. So that's the point there. The next one here on the list is to use trust when necessary to limit spendthrifts and encroachment. Um, you know, unfortunately, most families do have a spendthrift somewhere in the ranks. Mm-hmm. It's just the way, you know, life works. I mean, despite all the teaching encouragement, there's usually one who simply can't resist the temptation to buy things they can't afford. That means that if you want to share your estate um, to even last their lifetime, let alone your children's grandchildren's lifetimes you're going to have to employ some type of structure to promote longevity that usually means a trust with spendthrift provisions in it Um, now hopefully you you have other children who are responsible and can handle money and if so then you can simply leave any portion of your estate for a spendthrift child to a trust with the other one or two siblings as the trustees and the provision that they distribute 5% per year to that beneficiary child. Um, That way the assets can remain invested and they can grow while still giving your children the income that they feel like they're going to deserve from that inheritance. Um, You know, I've seen this done multiple times, and surprisingly it doesn't seem to produce the animosity that you might expect. I mean, spendthrift children, children, they, they usually know that they're not responsible with money, And they're even somewhat relieved that they don't have to worry about it and that this is one time they can't really blow it financially. You know, they can spend their 5% per year guilt-free and know that mom and dad's inheritance will still be around for their own children after they're gone. So I've seen that work pretty well. So anyway, um, if you have questions about this, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call. All right, and that leads us up to our... Uh, question, question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with um, saving for a down payment for a home. Um, I had a meeting with a client recently, and they had um, they had some money that they were saving up, and pretty significant cash, and um, they weren't sure if they were going to buy a home anytime soon. So they had kind of like a five-year time frame. Um, and so they said, you know, what should we do with it because it's sitting in cash. And, right. you know, it, it, that's kind of hard. I mean, if it's less than a couple of years, you know, usually keeping it safe in a, in a very conservative investment is is realistic and, it, and you know, it's, it's prudent. But when you get out to the three to five year time frame, you can put it into a conservative portfolio. I wouldn't do anything with your emergency fund. Keep that separate in cash. Right. But, you know, this house, you know, they're not really sure they're even going to buy it. So you can start to try to grow that a little bit in a conservative portfolio. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've seen folks use uh, maybe a conservative portfolio that has maybe 40% equities in it Mm -hmm. and 60% fixed income. Um, That kind of conservative, kind of a balanced portfolio for money that's, you know, got a five-year time horizon. And I think that works pretty well. And, you know, you're going to see about 40% of the volatility of the stock market. Um, you know, yes, it can certainly go down. So you got to have some flexibility about when you pull that money out, if you do need it in five years for the house or whatever. But uh, still, you want it to grow, and I think you have a pretty good chance if you uh, have at least, you know, 30 40% in equities. So that would be my suggestion as well. So, all right, that's a good one. That moves us on here to the five ways to save money when traveling abroad. Yeah, we've this is really interesting because it can get expensive when you're traveling just to get cash and mm-hmm. you know transactions and things you wouldn't think about um, can get really expensive. Yeah, I actually have both kids um, traveling international this week. Oh, so, wow. So Danielle has always wanted to go to, to Europe, and 
we've never taken a family trip per se. So she's like, well, I'm going to go. And I'm like, well, you're going to pay for it. So she's been saving up for about two years now. She's always had, um, you know, a side job. And, and so she's over there right now on a, on a trip. And uh, Matthew is on a missions trip to, to Haiti. Um, awesome. So we've both, um, both my kids have, have gone through this. And, and uh, I'll say that it's been challenging to, to get the right combination um, prepaid cards, currency, you know, it's, it is, it is, um, challenging and, yes. it, you know, Steve, I mean, you've traveled internationally, you know, the, the, some of the ins and outs and, um, you know, 72 million Americans traveled out of country in 2016. So a lot of people are traveling. They spent more than $140 billion and, you know, while much of that money was used to create memories that will last a lifetime, a portion of that went to financial fees that could have been avoided. So we're going to go through five tips of making sure you keep those transaction costs low um, and, uh, you know, make sure that you're managing your money well on the next trip abroad. So the first one here is steer clear of transaction costs. And we've had this conversation with our kids quite a bit over the last couple of weeks just planning on it. But, you know, most uh, credit and debit card issuers, they'll charge you a foreign transaction fee, and it typically runs between 2 and 3% of the purchase price as well as the ATM fees on top of that. And that may seem like a minor expense per transaction, but they can all, you know, those extra charges really add up over time. Yeah, it's significant. So you need to look into fees imposed by your banks and credit cards for, for taking money out um, or just charging things overseas. I mean, the overall fee often is a combination of the two fees, one from the issuing bank, of your credit card and the one from the credit card company itself um, or the ATM company that you're using Mm -hmm. to try to get cash out. Another note, I mean, that even if you have a a fee-free card, there still may be circumstances in which ATM merchants themselves charge a fee, which I think is always the case, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so check your card's terms, um, conditions, you know, find out what fees apply. I can say there are some credit cards that will exchange at spot rate. Mm Mm-hmm. So you need to look at the exchange rate they're going to give you when you purchase something. The merchant will always ask you if you want to charge in euros or dollars, mm-hmm. you know, or local currency, whatever that is. My answer is always use local currency, mm-hmm. and that way you know what your credit card company is going to exchange that yeah. at. And if and you have a good card, they'll exchange it at spot rate, and they won't mark it up on you. So. Yeah, we also found uh, AAA uh, has a prepaid card that you can load that you can then go pull cash out, and there's no cost to do it. Um, oh, nice. Unfortunately, we found out with Danielle, we got a frantic phone call uh, on Sunday, and um, there's not many places open on Sunday, so we were trying to help her get more additional money on her prepaid card because that prepaid card had been spent. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, but uh, AAA is a good mm-hmm. option. You, you might want to look out there for that if you're traveling. Uh, another thing here to look at is uh, make sure you find the, the best exchange rate. Um, airport currency kiosk, they may be convenient, but they also tend to be very pricey, um, often charging as much as $10 for exchanging any amount under $500. <clears throat> and even so-called no-fee exchanges tend to make a profit on their highly unfavorable exchange rates. And all told, uh, Fedora's estimates that travelers pay an extra 4% to 9% when exchanging currencies at such convenient but costly locations. So yeah, it's terrible. Stay away from airports. Absolutely. The airports are the worst place to exchange currency at. I mean, cash withdrawals from ATMs are generally the best choice for day-to-day funds. But again, beware of the transaction cost. I mean, some banks, they'll impose a, a flat <clears throat> per fee withdrawal rate. 
So I usually suggest, you know, do it all at once in one big transaction. So mm-hmm. you avoid kind of the flat fee on the front end, or at least you minimize it and you only hit it one time. Um, but others, you know, they don't, and they may even refund those levied by, by others. So, um, you know, but look at it. I mean, you're going to pay 2 to 3% typically at an ATM to get money out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the ATM itself. Even if you're a bank, like we use Bank of America for that type of transaction, and they, you know, they give us money, give us euros or whatever at spot rate. They mm, don't charge us good. any conversion rate, but the local ATM still charges you 2 to 3%, almost always. Yeah, I, I read something else about <clears throat> ATMs, just being careful with security. Um, overseas, that can be a, a place that, um, you know, there's oh, robberies yeah. that happen, so just, just be aware of that. And we had those conversations with our kids as well. Um, not that Matthew's going to be pulling out too much money in Haiti. <laughs> no, no. He <laughs> he's, not gonna be, he's not going to be shopping down there. So um, the next one here on the list, and you just mentioned this, Steve, is watch out for dynamic currency conversion. And, you know, many travelers are enticed by the convenience and familiarity of receiving the bills at restaurants in U.S. dollars. But this trend called dynamic currency conversion, it often comes with an unfavorable exchange rate. Um, also, maybe transaction fees or both. So when asked if you want to pay a bill in a local currency or in dollars, go with the local option unless you can verify that the cost is negligible and worth it. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you can get a spot rate a lot of times if you have a good card or a good situation already. So watch out for that uh, additional cost. And next one here on the list is secure your information. Um, nothing ruins a trip like a lost or stolen wallet. So make sure you take pictures of the content of your wallet, including the fronts and backs of the cards and insurance cards. Make sure you have all those important phone numbers to call in case of emergency. And uh, keep a copy on your phone um, along with pictures of your passport and any other documentation. So we did that. We had the kids, you know, have all yeah. that stuff on their phone, and we have it as well. And I'd split it up, to have it in a couple different places. So if you did get pickpocketed mm-hmm. or something, you wouldn't lose everything. You'd right. still have another card and more cash somewhere else. Um, but also be sure to, to, to activate fraud alerts on for all of your accounts that offer them. So you're notified right away of suspicious activity. Yeah, I mean, I, we do that for our cards. So I get these emails and texts all the time for anything that's over a certain limit mm-hmm. for my bank as well. But uh, sophisticated cyber criminals are often able to capture your financial information, even if your cards stay in your possession. You know, they just they have scanners. They'll <laughs> scan it out of your wallet. So I'm not going to put your cards in a shielded sleeve. Mm-hmm. You know, they have those that will prevent somebody from scanning the magnet strip on it you yeah. know, just by walk, brushing up against you. Danielle actually purchased a uh, backpack that is um, scan-proof because oh, she had nice. read that. And so um, now that creates an issue when you go through the uh, the TSA lines. Um, they have to look through that and check it out. But people can't steal your information. They can't scam it. Yeah, that's great. So uh, interesting. And so the last one here on the list is take advantage of built-in benefits. I mean, before you book your trip, see if your credit or debit card offers travel-related perks that can save you money or maybe ease your journey. Uh, for for example, maybe they offer help with hotel or restaurant reservations, or maybe they can give you free Wi-Fi access on, on flights and uh, even discuss um, on certain types of accommodations and transportation as well. So, you know, every card has a different benefit. Uh, AAA has been very helpful for us. Um, so we've used them to kind of help with this process as uh, our kids are going international. So, yep, five tips. Those are good. Following. Also, make sure you carry on your baggage. Yeah, that's right. I've had terrible luck with the bags not yes, showing up. That's what so I hear. You want to make sure you carry at least one good <laughs> overnight bag. There you go. With, with all the essentials. Yeah. 
Exactly. All right. Great tips of the week. And that leads up to our last thing here, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, and this is to um, to use envelopes to budget. We've talked about this before. It's very, very simple concept, but it's oh so effective. Um, if you're struggling with with a budget or a particular item, um, take cash out and put it into the envelope and spend out of that envelope. So as an example, let's say you have $100 to spend out at restaurants. Um, you would take out maybe 520s, put it in there. Once those 520s are gone, you're done. You do not spend any more on the restaurant budget. That is the ultimate way really of is. building in some accountability and some stops in your budgeting process so that you really don't overspend those categories. So, yeah, for every discretionary category you have, create one envelope, put cash in there, and use cash for your discretionary expenses. That's a great prescription of the week. Yeah, we're going to have this on Facebook, and we have um, our local celebrity, Sarah Jane, who is um, uh, she's a nerd at Spirit, and uh, from a Dave Ramsey perspective, that is. And um, so she's going to do a, a good good video presentation this week. That will be worth watching. Yeah, she's definitely. good at those. Yeah, she is. All right, that's been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week for more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. You can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.